So uh, before I start the sermon, if you are watching online, on the right side of the screen, there's live chat, and you can ask questions for the Ask Me Anything at the end of the sermon. And if you see questions and you have a brilliant answer that you could type in, just don't do that. Um, just save it. And then if my answer is really bad, then you can maybe type that in at the end of the AMA. So, um, but it is really distracting for people because they, they want to get down their question, but keep listening to the sermon, hopefully. So uh, there it is. Okay, um, we're going to do uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 8. I'm actually going to split that into two sermons. So we'll do uh, the first two things out of it today. We'll talk about another thing in two weeks after Lloyd preaches. And so if you have a Bible, go ahead and take it out. I'm going to be reading um, chapter 3, verse 11 through verse 9 in chapter 4. Let's read together. Now, may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father and our Lord Jesus when he comes with all his holy ones. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instruct you, we instructed you how you ought to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. And now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that you should learn to control your own body, in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. And that in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now about for your love for one another, we do not need to write anything to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. The main line in this passage is very clearly, it is God's will that you should be sanctified. That's clearly the main idea. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. The problem is that most people have no idea what the word sanctification or sanctified means, and it's because it's a Latinized word. Most of us don't speak a lot of Latin anymore, and so we hear that word, and it kind of just kind of flitters in our minds and goes away. It means something like religiosity or something, right? It's not really what the word holiness means. The word holy, what we translate holy and we translate sanctified are the same word groups in Greek. Hagios, right? Holy. What does that mean? Um, in some ways, it's, it's sometimes it's better to approach these things from, with secular language to get the idea because we have such bigotry about religious language sometimes within a culture like ours. So on one level, a, something that's holy is something that is defined for a particular use and is good for that use. It's defined or set apart for a particular use, and it's good for that use, okay? So for example, I have a countertop in my garage, and I have a countertop in my kitchen. Both are countertops. Both are very useful. Both are set apart, 
and useful for the task, and they are not used for the tasks of the other ones. Okay? If I ever try to, my wife usually intervenes, especially in relationship to the one in the kitchen. Okay? One is for food preparation. The other is for fixing stuff. They're very different. Does that make sense? They are set apart for just that purpose, and they are useful and to be used for that purpose. I grew up—so my mom's side of my family is Southern European. She's from Italy. My dad is from the Isles, and so on. And so we have our sort of repressed affluent, effluent, right? And in, in the Southern European um, culture, people have a much stronger history of poverty. Okay, with the Southern European culture is, is about making something out of nothing, man. And it's one of the reasons why Italians and Irish were so hated when they came to America, because we were good at living on very little money and underselling people who already lived here. And so um, when Greek and Italian immigrants would come to America and do okay and buy their own homes and they would buy furniture that would look like it was something that should be in a palace, they would cover it with plastic. And that plastic would cover it for the rest of the duration of the history of that furniture in that home. It was not like a—it's not like a 10-minute thing or a—like, let's keep it nice for a month. It was—you would—I would go to my aunt's house at 15 years old. Same couch, same plastic cut. Did anybody have that background? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because keep it nice, right? And you could still use it. Technically, you just couldn't feel the fabric. You know what I'm saying? In a sense, that's what people think holiness is. Set apart, but not to be used. Not really, not completely. And that's not the biblical notion of holiness. Holiness in the Bible is to be fully set apart for something and then be fully used for that thing. Right? Tools are like that. I don't want my kids using my tools for what they're not for, but there's no use in having a tool that you don't use to do the thing it's for. Right? In, in sort of a different illustration, a family name is like this. Right? You, you want your family name to mean something, but everybody in your family has to use it. So everybody has to treat it like it's a sacred thing because your reputation is built cumulatively around the reputation of your family, especially the smaller group of people you live in. Right? And yet— it's to be used. Like, I want my daughters, when they go out to work, to say, I'm Abigail Gibson. I'm Rachel Gibson. I'm Jude Gibson. I'm Helena Gibson. I want Gibson to matter, and I want them to use it, and I, but I want them to protect it. Right? And this is true for marriage, very specifically, and friendship, more generally, right? You—friendship has to be set apart. You can't be equally friends with everybody in this room, for example. And this is a fairly small group of people. You can't be—you can't be friends with more than, I don't know, Six or seven people is what psychologists say is a good inner circle. Thirty, next circle out from that. Outside of that, it's, it's tribe and clan, man. You're not that close. If you try to be really good friends with 47 people, you're not going to be a good friend to anyone, right? There is a set-apartness to friendship. You have to choose. And then you're supposed to be a friend. And if you, if you miss out on either of those ideas— that it's set apart for the thing and to be used. You can't really understand the concept of holiness. And what God is trying to redo in the death and resurrection of Christ and bringing us to himself is to reset us apart as human beings for what human beings are for. And get us to do it. <laughs> That's it. That's all holiness is. It is to reset us apart as image bearers in creation. 
as his vice regents to bring his creativity and his action and his work and his productivity and his fruitfulness and his flourishing to his creation and to do it with holiness, to do it in purity, in self-control, in capacity to govern ourselves, and in justice. You can see all three of those in this passage in particular, right? And so as, as you sort of enter into this idea of what is sanctification or holiness, it's important to understand that what it means is, is that if you, when you believe in Jesus, what, what's happening is you are, you're being set apart. What, what happens is in the new identity Jesus gives you, when it says in 2 Corinthians 5 that you're a new creation, or in John chapter 3 that you're born again, there's, or 1 Peter 1 and 2 that you're, part of the new birth. Something is happening that is setting you apart for something different, right? You're this kind of counter, not that one anymore. You're specifically for something, and that is a consecration. You're made in connection with something, and then it's assumed that throughout your life, you will stay in that connection in loyalty. You're God's. You're set apart to God. You're for God's purposes, and you're loyal to those purposes. You've therefore purified yourself to those purposes. And because that's what you were originally for, and you are doing what you were originally for, and that is your identity, you're blameless because you are doing what you're for. Right? And because God made you for those things, there is a goodness and a wholesomeness to embracing them. Embracing what is truly human, which is what God has commanded us to do and be, is what we're really for. And when we do it, we flourish. We blossom. There's a, there's a wholesomeness. There's a meatiness to it that can only come out when we don't degrade ourselves in other things, but allow ourselves to be for what we're for. Right? Which means that there's a fittedness and a readiness in us for that thing. And because of that, because there's meaning in it, there is a sacredness or a reverence that we're supposed to have towards what we were made for and what we must be. Embracing all of that together, seeing it in our new identity in Christ, and then living it out in how God is ordering us and learning to do it more and more, as the apostle says, is what it means to be sanctified. Is what it means to pursue holiness. It's what it means to grow in godliness. Right? And what this passage is saying, what the apostle is saying to these guys is saying, listen, it's God's will for you that you would be sanctified. That's God's will for you. It's not self-righteous to pursue it. And you can't choose not to pursue it. God's will for you is for you to be sanctified. In some ways, that is the pursuit of your life, right? And what is important to recognize is that both at the beginning and the end of this passage, Paul specifically references the importance and centrality of love of love, right? The two great pursuits of the Christian, at least in 1 Thessalonians, are the will of God and love. What do we owe God, right? Our loyalty to do what he's made us and called us to do, to live according to his will. Christians don't pursue simply an abstract set of moralities. It's interesting, in Thessalonica, in the first century, religion and morality had nothing to do with each other. Why? I mean, just get any mythology book of the Greek gods, and you'll, you'll read stories about not particularly moral beings. Last night I was reading the story of Europa, right? That Europe is named after. She was a pretty girl that Zeus came to in the form of a bull, to which she rode to a distant island where he had children with her aside while his wife was away for the weekend. 
The whole continent is named after her, right? This story of the promiscuity of the head god and his capacity to seduce the most beautiful woman of a continent and to own her for himself and not allow her to be possessed by a husband so that they could mutually love one another in their mortality, right? And so in Greek religion, there were, there were the Greek virtues, right? Virtue built on veer, that is what makes you strong, not necessarily what makes you good. The virtues make you successful. The gods can give you grace or blessing. They can make you successful by their own power, their own capricious actions. In virtues, you can play the game of humanity to be as strong as you can be, to work the system so that you can be successful. Neither particularly moral, neither particularly focused on goodness. It was when the Jewish people were spread among them that there were these strange people that thought there was some connection between morality and ethics and virtue and God. And it was not until the Christians came and universalized this and, it, and went directly into Greco-Roman culture and said, no, don't you understand? There is no fellowship between goodness and Dionysius. Like, you, you can't have the, the orgy fertility cult and be good. Like, these, these things— they're meant to go together because we are one creature. We bear the image of God, and there are not the gods that are actually the expressions of our own lustful passions. We have made up those gods. The God who is there is the God who made us, which we are to reflect, and he is consummately good and righteous. And when you put it all together, it would be something like holy, which is exactly how he reveals himself, right? When he comes to Isaiah, in Isaiah 6, right, the angel comes to singing before God. He says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. You may want to believe that God is primarily love, but there's only one attribute sung in triumvirate before God's entrance in the Bible. And there's only one attribute that God demonstrates throughout five books of the beginning of the Bible to make sure people understand it before they even understand the depth or dynamics of his love, lest they misunderstand what love is. God showed himself as holy first— and then in that context, long-suffering and unending in his devotion to his holiness to cause our good and flourishing, which is love properly understood. And so as Paul is exhorting the Thessalonians to love each other more and more, you should want to love each other. As Christians, we should want to love each other so deeply. And the natural bonds of family and in the, in the, the organizational bonds of of our occupation and in the locational bonds of our neighbors and in the societal bonds of our city, we should want to love each other and love each other really well. And he's like, look, you guys are already doing that. You already understand you're supposed to love each other. But here's the problem. Without sanctification, you can't do it. You can't do it. The unsanctified person will wield their, the image of God in themselves to create so much harm that their presence, even if they will to love, their actions will produce a degradation and a harm and an injustice because they're really a slave to their passions. Giving of themselves to impurity and acting in ways that are profoundly unjust when they think that they're acting lovingly. You can only be loving consistently, deeply, in a way that produces real powerful flourishing in others if and only if, more and more, the work of sanctification is being done. It is the pursuit of your life in Christ, and it allows you to achieve the two great ends, to live in the pleasing, 
will of God and to love our neighbor as ourself. It is the potency of God rebuilding your capacity to live in the image of God. Now, I'm going to talk about two things today. I've already talked about this. Sanctification is the foundation. We talked about this already. Sorry. So how, do we, how, how can we look at this over the next two times I preach? One is to say that God demands sanctification. He defines sanctification. It's not loosey-goosey. And he directs it. And part of directing is also empowering. So he demands it. He defines it. And he directs it. Okay. Um, so first, let's look at demands, okay? God's call to us that we should be sanctified or that we should grow in real holiness in our character, in our lives more and more is not a request made after we come to Jesus. It is part and parcel of salvation itself and it is something that is requisite for salvation to happen. Now, it's not requisite to be saved. To come to Christ, to be justified, to experience the new birth, to be made a new creation in Christ, is a unilateral action of God on the basis of faith. If you believe in Christ, he will give you the gift of salvation, forgiveness, reconciliation, a new identity in him. It's an entirely, 100% a free gift to you. Okay? You don't, you don't, you don't pursue holiness in order to be saved. Okay? But the seed of salvation has within it the oak of righteousness. It is an acorn implanted in you with a new living heart in the presence of the Holy Spirit, and it must grow. It must grow. And after believing in Christ, you can decide, it says in Mark 4, to wrap it in the weeds and vines of this world and choke out the life of the thing so that it cannot grow. Or in Hebrews chapter 6, that you can— there's a land that, that's fertile that if it produces thorns and thistles enough, it's going to get burned. Right? That, that faith combines with this work of the Spirit and with our capacity as human beings so that the acorn of faith and salvation and regeneration and the presence of the Spirit grows the fruit of righteousness such that in some, certain passages of the Bible, for example, in, in Peter, when he's describing salvation, he refers to our transformation into holiness before he even refers to the sprinkling of his blood, which is a reference to our forgiveness. It says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, it says, Make every effort to live in peace with everyone, right? To love people and to be holy, right? So outwardly, we're working outwardly and positively towards love. And inwardly, we're working negatively to kill sin and to grow in holiness, right? And he says, for without holiness, no one will see the Lord. A more literal, literal translation is, and be holy, without which no one will see the Lord. Now, that is not some weird theological thing. It means exactly what it seems to. It says, without the experience of godliness that grows from the free gift of salvation, you cannot be saved. Because your claim to faith turns out to be a delusion. The tree has to grow if the true seed is planted and received. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. It is a demand. It is not a request. Does that make sense? To push this a little further, um, there are 14 references to how important it is to be sanctified just in these verses. It's 14! Right? 
So in verse 13, chapter 3, that you would be holy and blameless in his presence. You, you need that. Jesus is going to come back. You're going to find yourself one day immediately in the presence of Jesus, the King, the perfectly righteous one. And in that moment, <laughs> you're going to want to be sanctified. You're going to want to not just have received his gift, you're going to want to have done something with his gift, invested his gift, not buried the talent in the ground, but invested in something good and, and sought that the work of the Spirit should have some fruit in you that you no longer live under the wretchedness of the law of the flesh, but you've received the new law of the Spirit and it's doing something in you. And you want to stand in front of Jesus where he can be like, yeah. Right? And then he says, I urge you in the Lord. Because if you're in the Lord— this urging should do something to you because this is what the Lord teaches. It's important. He says you do this in order to please God. Right? Now, depends on how you hear that. Depends on where you are in faith. Right? If you're just kind of like, well, just, God just likes his angry father. Maybe I'm supposed to just please him. What if I don't want to please him? No. If you understand the beauty of the personality of God himself, the greatest pleasure that you can have is to bring pleasure to him. If you really love somebody and you care deeply about them and you want your relationship not to be just one of organization but of intimacy, your greatest desire is to please them in any way, even a trivial way. And he says, if you grow in sanctification more and more, the inevitable effect of that in the heart of God himself, the divine being, is that he is pleased. It's not hard to please. He says, I gave you these instructions on the authority of the Lord Jesus. They're not— just something I'm saying. They're by his authority. He says, and it's the will of God. It's God's will that you should be sanctified. To do so is, he says in later verses, holy and honorable. He says, if you don't, you'll end up out of control and a slave to your own cravings. Do you want to be a thrall? Something entirely in the control of something else outside of you. So weak, so not even really yourself anymore, that you are just controlled by the urgings of the cravings of your passions? Isn't that a horrible mental image of yourself? And he argues that without sanctification, that is what you will be. And that is what sin does to all human beings. And that to do so is to be like someone who doesn't know God. Do you want to be labeled like that? Do you want that to be true about you? A good way to describe you? He says, and, and to be unsanctified is to wrong others, to do them wrong, and to take advantage of them. All sin is injustice. All of it. Always. And then he says, listen, we've warned you already and repeatedly to not be sanctified is out of step with God's calling. And you would be out of step with the very one who's given you his Holy Spirit. That's, that's not acceptable. That's impossible. This is going to be three sermons. So let's end with this then. We'll just do the first one today. Here's what that means. Here's what, you, here's what you need to understand. Every one of these demands is a promise. You gotta, you gotta be careful how you hear it, okay? Every one is a demand. Every one of these is a demand. And every one is an offer. Right? In chapter 2, Paul says, he says, when we came to you, we were like, we were like parents. We were gentle among you like a nursing mother. So gentle, focused on your nurture and care, right? And we were like a father, exhorting you to grow up in the faith. Exhort—what's exhortation? What, right? Is that just a religious word? Is that just an archaic word? No, exhortation is a charge to another person that has both a demand and a promise in it. 
It demands something on, a, on moral grounds. You must do this. But in it is an implicit offer. If you do this, what good might result? It is your inheritance as a Christian. I mean, do, do you notice that there's 14 different demands here? But like, n- actually none of them are the same one as in Hebrews. None of them are the explicit, simple demand, do this or you die. They're all demanding, but they're all also motivating in different ways. And to anybody who's come to Jesus and wants to please him, wants to belong to him, they're all really special. You can be holy and blameless in his presence when he returns. That's a possibility. That's a real possibility. It's your inheritance that on that day when Jesus comes, you can be in his presence holy and blameless. If you must do these things in the Lord, it means that you are in the Lord. That you're his. That you belong to him and in some meaningful way he belongs to you. It's the only way in the Lord matters to you. You can, if you have to do it to please God, it means you can please God. That the pleasure he brings to you, you can bring back to him. That you can start now the eternal relationship of being pleased by and bringing pleasure to God. You can experience some of the bliss and greatness of enjoying the fact that your life is pleasing to the one who can evaluate it rightly and knows it and sees it and cares about it most. That you, that can, you can feed on the peace of that in almost any trial, if it means something to you. It means that if you have to do it under the authority of Jesus, it means that you are acting with and under the authority of Jesus. If you can be in God's will, that means you can do the will of God and be in the will of God. Think about that. Don't think of it just as a trial. I've got to be in God's will. That's like a thing and I've got to do it. No, like literally you can, in this world, as screwed up as it is, if you're sanctified, you can actually walk in the will of God and you can do the will of God. You can be his, I know it's a cliche, but it's kind of a true one, his hands and feet in the world. You can, you can be his agent, his regent, his ambassador in the world. That can be you. And to the extent to which you're sanctified, it is you. You can live in a way that is beautiful and full of goodness. You can live in a way that's holy and honorable. You can live in virtuous liberty rather than in the cravings and degrading place of being a slave to your lustful passions. I mean, some of you, some of you really struggle with that. There's some operative desire and craving that you have that you just can't, you can't seem to overcome, right? And I'm going to talk apparently the third week instead of the second about how do you overcome it? But remember, it says at the very end, the one who gives you his Holy Spirit. And when it says, he didn't call you, call you to impurity, but to live a holy life, that's actually not a very good translation. The, the Greek literally says, he didn't call you on account of impurity, but in holiness. He called—he doesn't just say in the text, he called you to be holy. It says he called you in holiness. That is, he brought you into holiness— and now he wants you to live in it. You didn't achieve it, and you don't have to achieve it. You just have to recognize it's now who you are. And then try to be that self that is yourself in him. It means you can know God. 
It means you can live justly. It means you can walk with God and in, in his way. It means that if, if rejecting sanctification is to reject God, it means that to pursue it is to embrace and accept him. And it means that if you reject him, you reject his Holy Spirit. It means that if you embrace him, you embrace the Holy Spirit that he freely gives you, who is the one who empowers all of this. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. It is his will. It is also his demand. Without holiness, in a meaningful way connected to faith that God grows in us, no one will see the Lord because God will judge, God will judge us by our faith. But that faith has to demonstrate something of its truthfulness through what it does in us. So therefore, without holiness, no one will see the Lord because no one will have real faith, saving faith, if there's no effect. Does that make sense? And so in, in Romans 6 that we'll talk about another, another time, Paul says it as simply as this. He says, you used to offer yourself as an offering to the things that used to degrade you and then enslave you. What you do now is you don't pull yourself up by your bootstraps or flagellate yourself emotionally about how terrible you are. Or He said, what you do now is you just take yourself as that same offering and you offer yourself to what God calls righteousness. That's it. And that righteousness will lead, it says in, in verse 22, to godliness or sanctification. You, you're an offering, right? The whole Bible is filled with this concept of an offering. <coughs> you're an offering. And you either, will either today offer yourself in faith seeking salvation to sin that you think will give you something, but will in fact degrade you and ultimately enslave you. And that is the context in which there is the verse, for the wages of sin is death. Right? That, that's actually not a reference to ju justification. It's a reference to what happens when you offer yourself as an offering over and over to sin. You get what the work of sin offers, which is death. Right? He says, but if you take yourself as an offering— Right now, no matter whatever has happened in your past, no matter what your track record is, no matter what you're bad at, no matter how you've been treated, no matter what wounds you carry, no matter what infirmities make it difficult for you to obey, whatever that is, you're still an offering. And you're an offering that's, that's pleasing to God because no matter what's wrong with you, more foundational, more valuable, that is the image of God imprinted upon you, that is the image of God himself. Nothing you could have ever done or been done to you will take away the value that you are as an offering to God because you bear his image. Full stop. Therefore, your only work then is to take that yourself, your own being, your consciousness and your adoration and your emotions, and to offer them as an offering to God. By— not just saying, God, I give myself to you, but saying, God, I want to be part of your will. I have to respond to your will, not by the private things you hold in your own mind that you haven't told me, the secret will of God, but by obeying the revealed will of God, what you've told me to be about doing, which is this thing you call righteousness. That is, what's good and just and right and true. And so therefore, I give myself to you by giving myself to it. By giving myself as an offering to righteousness, I give myself to your will and to you. And Paul says, when you do that, Giving yourself to righteousness produces not death, but sanctification. And sanctification produces all of these things. Now, 
It's important then to do that, not on the basis of merely human effort, but in line with the Holy Spirit and in line with the greater sacrifice made for you. The only way that you can order your heart and your mind to give yourself each day as an offering to righteousness, as an offering to the will of God to lead to sanctification, is if you recognize yourself at every moment under the greater offering, which is the death and resurrection of Christ for you. Right? He gave himself as a slain offering and enslaved under the killing power of sin in the cross, in his own execution, to be executed on your behalf, to free you from the dominion of darkness so that you could receive his forgiveness, the new birth, his salvation, the Holy Spirit, and therefore the capacity for the rehabilitation of the image of God and the pursuit of godliness through sanctification. And so if you've got elements at home, you can get them ready. If you're going to receive them here, we're going to have a volunteer actually place what you need on the table so that you can take it. If for some reason, out of